This is Africa News Tonight on The Voice of America. Hello, welcome to VOA Africa. Thank you for joining us. I'm Douglas Mpuga, and here's what's coming up. Namibia has a very remarkable political culture generally. Keep in mind, since independence in 1990, there's not a single political murder on record. That was Professor Henning Melba, a Namibian citizen and politics lecturer at the University of Pretoria on the smooth transition in Namibia following the death of President Hagi Gengob. Also, opposition leaders in Senegal are protesting the move to postpone elections. And U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken is meeting today with Egyptian and Qatari leaders. All this and more coming up on African News Tonight. Opposition leaders in Senegal are protesting the move to postpone elections that had been set for February 25th. Some analysts say the delay hurt Senegal's reputation as a beacon of democracy. VOS Nairobi Bureau Chief Mariama Diallo has this story. Senegal's President Macky Sall announced the delay this past weekend, saying it was necessary because of allegations of corruption in elected-related cases and the disqualification of some leading candidates, including Usman Sonko, who came third in the 2019 elections, and Karim Wad, son of former President Abdoulaye Wad. Lloyd Kuveya, assistant director at the Center for Human Rights in the Faculty of Law at the University of Pretoria in South Africa, spoke to VOA via Skype. Some people are saying uh, because of the chaos that is uh, prevailing uh, in in Senegal, where some opposition party leaders are in in prison, including Songo, uh, which is really disturbing. Therefore, the election would not be a legitimate election without uh, some of the heavyweights, political heavyweights, contesting in the election. Presidential elections in Senegal will now take place in December after the nation's parliament voted Monday to delay the polls that were supposed to take place on February 25th. Opposition leaders rejected the move, including Anta Babakar Ngom, presidential candidate for the alternative for the citizen succession. She says this is President Macky Sall's balance sheet, and it's upsetting because he almost left with his head held high But now, unfortunately, he's showing his true face. It's a constitutional coup, and we want accepted. The parliamentary voting process was chaotic, as some opposition lawmakers were escorted out by security forces as they tried to block the vote. In July, following deadly clashes protesting a possible run for third term by President Saul, he finally said he would not seek one. Kuveya says it looks like Sal is still enjoying the sweetness of power and wants to stay a little longer. Can we really trust Maki Sal, especially after everybody knows that he had intentions for going for third term? And uh, if, it had, if it hadn't been for the protests of the people of, of, of Senegal, I, I am quite sure that uh, you know he would have uh, gone ahead to change the constitution and get the Supreme Court uh, to endorse that unconstitutional change. Kuveo says President Saul knew that elections were supposed to take place on February 25th and had ample time to prepare. You have five years in which to prepare for that for, for elections. You have five years in which to ensure that there's a conducive environment in which elections are going to be held. You have five years to allow the uh, political participation 
of any person who wants to contest for political power. Senegal has always been seen as a beacon of democracy in a region plagued by coups. Awajan Morel, CEO of France at Senegal, an NGO active in Senegal in the field of education, spoke to VOA via WhatsApp on Tuesday. It comes as a big shock. It's very sad because Senegal is losing this image of being an island of democracy in West Af- Western Africa and its credibility too. When one sees that what's ha- what is happening in the other country of the sub-region like Niger, Mali, or Burkina Faso, or what happened years ago, for example, in Ivory Coast, it's really frightening. On Monday, two opposition parties filed a court petition challenging the election delay. Maria Magyalo, VOA News, Nairobi. U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken is meeting today with Egyptian and Qatar leaders amid a push for a new temporary ceasefire in Gaza and an increase in humanitarian aid for Palestinian civilians. Blinken met with Egypt's President Abdel Fattah al-Sisi in Cairo as he continued his fifth visit to the Middle East since the outbreak of the war in Gaza between Israel and Hamas. Blinken is hoping to press ahead with a potential ceasefire deal and post-war planning while tamping down regional tensions. His visit also comes amid growing concerns in Egypt about Israel's stated intentions to expand the combat in Gaza to areas on the Egyptian border that are crammed with displaced Palestinians. Egypt has warned that an Israeli deployment along the border would threaten the peace treaty the two countries signed over four decades ago. Blinken began his trip yesterday in Saudi Arabia. He also has stops scheduled in Israel and the Israeli-occupied West Bank. The World Health Organization warns cholera is at high risk of spreading to African countries that have been largely unaffected by this deadly disease. Lisa Schlein reports for VOA from Geneva. Africa, particularly eastern and southern Africa, is the epicenter of cholera, which has been surging globally since 2021. In the first four weeks of this year, the World Health Organization reports 10 of the most seriously affected African countries reported more than 26,000 cases and 700 deaths. This is nearly twice the numbers reported during the same period in 2023. Among the countries of greatest concern, WHO cites Zambia and Zimbabwe, as well as Mozambique, Tanzania, DR Congo, Ethiopia, and Nigeria. Fiona Braca is Emergency Operations Manager in WHO's Regional Office for Africa. She warns cholera is likely to spread beyond the borders of affected countries to other vulnerable areas. For example, she says the conflict in Sudan has pushed tens of thousands of people to seek safety in neighboring countries. She says the movement of people from Sudan, which has 10,000 cholera cases and 218 deaths, poses a risk to Chad, Ethiopia, and other countries of asylum. Speaking from Brazzaville, she says she has just returned from Zambia, which is witnessing its worst-ever outbreak. She says cholera has spread to all 10 provinces in Zambia, with the capital, Lusaka, the worst affected. And in both countries, Zambia and Zimbabwe, the number of people that have died is particularly concerning. The majority are dying in the community, 
are not in health facilities, which means that a large proportion of patients are not reaching life-saving care in time due to reasons such as stigma. Braca says climate change and conflict are fueling the cholera epidemic. She says floods, cyclones and droughts further reduce access to clean water, creating an ideal environment for cholera to thrive. She says the cholera outbreak in Zambia appears to be slowing, with more than 30% fewer deaths reported over the past week compared to the previous week. However, she warns Africa is not yet out of the woods. While this situation is unprecedented, it's nothing but a continuation of what we saw last year. This year, Zambia is seeing its worst cholera outbreak. Zimbabwe is seeing its second worst outbreak. Last year, it was Malawi and Mozambique. We will continue to see records being broken as long as people do not have access to clean water and sanitation facilities. Despite the global shortage of oral cholera vaccines, Braca says more than 1.7 million people have been vaccinated in Zambia, and a campaign that is underway in Zimbabwe is expected to cover 2.3 million people. Braca says governments, NGOs, and community groups must focus on improving water, sanitation, and hygiene to get this deadly disease under control and to prevent future cholera outbreaks. She says cholera is preventable and treatable and that no one should die from it. Lisa Schlein for VOA News, Geneva. A Kenyan court on Tuesday charged a cult leader and dozens of suspected accomplices with murder in the death of nearly 200 people. Self-proclaimed pastor Paul Untenge Mackenzie is alleged to have incited his accolades to starve to death in order to meet Jesus. He has been he has had rather been charged with terrorism, manslaughter, child torture, and cruelty. The French news agency AFP says that Mackenzie and 29 other suspects pleaded not guilty today to 191 counts of murder. He was arrested in April after bodies were found in the Shakahola forest. Autopsies revealed that most of the hand of the 429 victims had died of hunger. But others, including children, appear to have been strangled, beaten, or suffocated. You're listening to African News Tonight. I'm Douglas Impuga in Washington. For more information on these and other stories from the continent, please see voaafrica.com. There you'll find all your favorite VOA radio and TV programs and a whole lot more. For more for world news, check out vuenews.com. Kenyan police say they have arrested the, the main suspect in a deadly gas blast that triggered a huge fireball in a densely populated area of Nairobi uh, last week. Six people lost their lives in the disaster, and around 280 were injured when a truck loaded with gas canisters exploded in Mbakasi in the southeast of the Kenyan capital late Thursday. The French news agency AFP reports that Kenya's director of criminal investigations says it has ar- ar- arrested the prime suspect, Derek Martha, who rented the gas depot where the blast occurred. Three officials from the National Environmental Management Agency, NEMA, have also been accused of wrongly giving a license for the liquid gas filling and storage plant in the densely populated area. Authorities say five other suspects are still at large, including the manager of the site, another NEMA employee, 
and a truck driver. Some regional analysts say President Hagi Gengob was such a big figure in Namibian political life that his death leaves a void in the minerals-rich southern African country. 82-year-old Gengob died on Sunday while receiving cancer treatment at a hospital in Namibia's capital, Windhoek. Experts on Namibia call him a driving force from behind the country's independence from apartheid South Africa in 1990. But in recent years, he also presided over a ruling party rocked by corruption scandals and plummeting popularity. Darren Taylor reports. Namibia's new president is another stalwart of the Swapo party, which has governed the country for almost 34 years. Nangolo Mbumba, the former vice president, says he'll serve in the role until elections later this year. Namibia, with a population of just 2.6 million people, is a small country, but its wealth, which includes diamonds, gold and copper, means it punches above its weight on the world stage. Its importance is set to grow, as Namibia holds significant reserves of rare earth minerals, such as cobalt and lithium, highly in demand for use in renewable energy technologies. Professor Henning Melba, a Namibian citizen and politics lecturer at the University of Pretoria, says despite the recent failings of Geingob's Swapo party, the president's death revealed something rare in Africa. After the sad news broke a few minutes after midnight on Sunday, the whole transition and transfer went smooth, dignified and totally efficient in line with the Namibian constitution. I think this is very remarkable to note. It was a very peaceful, well-organized response to the passing on of the head of state, and no one in Namibia has uttered any bad words on Geingob. It's a whole country in shock. Melba says Namibia's future looks good, largely because of Geingob. Namibia has a very remarkable political culture generally. Keep in mind, since independence in 1990, there is not a single political murder on record. There was nothing like any political violence which led to serious damage or even killing of people in 34 years. That reflects a general approach among Namibians, despite the fact that half of the country lives in poverty, that it's together with South Africa the most unequal society in the world, where you see the frustration in the South African townships mounting, where you see tires burned, you don't experience anything like that so far after 34 years of independence in Namibia. As an opposition member of parliament, Henny Sebeb says he had many arguments with Geingob, but he adds he'll remember the deceased president as a man of reconciliation. Despite all our differences politically and so on, he never let me doubt for a day that I am not welcome in his arena or in his personal space. So President Hage Geingob is actually leaving a deep legacy. One to say that, look, despite all the challenges, let us hold hands and look forward. And we are going to remember him, especially for spearheading green hydrogen projects.
will remember him as a very loving man. But, says Sebeb, Gaingob also leaves a ruling party in a slump, a party that seems unable to acknowledge that it has lost appeal to younger voters who aren't as connected to the liberation struggle as their elders. Gaingob won the 2019 election with 56% of the vote, but that was well down from the 87% he won in 2014. Also in 2019, Swapo lost its two-thirds majority in Parliament for the first time. There were also allegations of corruption in Gaingob's government, including a large scandal over fishing rights in Namibia's coastal waters. For VOA News, I'm Darren Taylor in Johannesburg. The International Organization for Migration reports 10.7 million people have been uprooted from their homes, including 9 million displaced internally since fighting broke out in April 2023 between the Sudanese Armed Forces and the Paramilitary Rapid Support Forces. That's the largest internal displacement in the world. Latisha Bada, Deputy Director of Human Rights Watch, tells VOA's Caravan Dam, aid is also being prevented from entering the country at the border by both sides, with the RSF looting much of what makes it into its areas of control. These are incredibly grim statistics, but behind those statistics you obviously have immense stories of personal upheaval and devastating decisions. I mean, many people that we've spoken to have had to leave literally everything behind, their homes, but also their relatives, a lot of older people, people who also can't afford to flee. Fleeing costs a lot of money in a context of war. Also, at the same time, as there being very, very limited humanitarian access, The warring parties have deliberately prevented aid from going into the country. They've massively looted, particularly the rapid support forces, have continually looted supplies of aid in the country. You've had bureaucratic hurdles. And you also have a humanitarian context, which is woefully underfunded. When you mentioned the um, the aid that's just not getting through, the, the head of USAID, Samantha Powers, was talking about that and said that it's it's unacceptable that there, all this aid is just being held up at the border. Do you have any people on the ground that have seen this happening, where where they're deliberately holding up aid? There's a mixture of factors, basically. There are border points where there are incredibly difficult negotiations going on. There's definitely been a holding up of aid at the port, Port Sudan, um, by the Sudanese authorities and military intelligence there. So there are very different dynamics. In, In many ways, there are multiple contexts. There are different actors in control. There are different actors calling the shots on access um, into the country. But I think, you know, what we have seen in terms of the international response is we've seen messages of solidarity, but we haven't really seen that being mirrored by real efforts to push to be very clear that there are consequences for actions such as blocking aid, which is a violation of international humanitarian law when it's done on the scale and in the ways it's being done right now in Sudan. Um, We've also not seen um, the humanitarian donor community really, really putting in the money despite these messages of concerns which which have been coming out, but also trying to really think about how they can do 
and how they can respond to the needs in a context where it is so difficult to operate. There are multiple Sudanese actors, despite all of this, who are trying to provide services on the ground. The U.S. ambassador to the U.N., uh, Linda Thomas-Greenfield, was asked about Sudan, and basically she said it's incumbent that the two generals seize the efforts and go to the negotiating table with civilians at the table. How likely do you think that's going to be happening soon? You know, from our point of view, one of the concerns is that there have been no consequences so far on the two generals or on their forces for the horrific acts of abuses and, and attacks on civilians we've been seeing since since April, basically. And so in many ways, they have nothing to lose to continue to, to, to literally devastate their country. I mean, Khartoum, as I said, was a town of 6.5 million people, 70% of the health system, which was very centralized in the capital city, has been destroyed in the last 10 months. Um, Where are the consequences for that? What actions have been taken by international actors, by regional actors to say to these two generals, that's not acceptable, to say to those who are supporting these generals, that is not acceptable, we will take measures. That was Leticia Beda, Deputy Director of Human Rights Watch. She was speaking with my colleague Caravan Dam from Rome. At least 11 villagers have died in attacks blamed on the ADF rebel group in the Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo. The Allied Democratic Forces, a militia linked to the Islamic State group, launched raids in several villages in the Mambasa area of Ituri province yesterday morning. A police official told the French news agency AFP that 11 corpses had been found in different parts of the forest. The official said the army was tracking the rebels in the Irumu area of Ituri and in the Beni area of neighboring North Kivu province. A head of a local civil group told AFP that 13 people had been killed, mostly peasant farmers whose bodies were still in their fields. Last year, Somali farmers faced a dual threat of drought and flooding. Jamel Ahmed Osman spoke with farmers who shared their experiences of how extreme climate conditions are taking a toll in this report narrated by VOA's Arash Arabasad. Here, in Kalundi village in the middle Shabel region, about 90 kilometers north of Somalia's capital Mogadishu, Former Ismail Hassan is among many who say they felt the impact of climate change. Hassan says the changes in seasonal weather patterns make it hard to earn a living. Sometimes drought leaves his seeds lacking water, or too much rain floods riverbanks, posing a challenge, he says. Another farmer, Mude Osman, now displaced in Jawar district, says too much and too little water have forced him to leave his farm twice. Osman says his harvest is affected by climate change, facing floods and droughts each year. When water submerges his farm, he must relocate. The same happens in a drought, he says. Jawar district farmer Jamalo Ahmed Safar also says the drought has impacted farming in this area. Safar says over the last four years, they have experienced continuous droughts, and each time they sow their crops, the river runs dry. 
Heavy rains and floods affected more than 1.2 million people late last year, according to the United Nations, following years of drought that caused near-famine conditions. Activists like Abdul Qadir Abanur say climate extremes are causing food scarcity in the country. In Somalia, uh, we need real change and action to address climate change issues, which affected the whole country especially for the farmers and for all other sectors. Farmers and climate activists like Abanur worry about long-term decreases in food production and the impacts on the country as climate extremes become more common. For Jamal Osman in Mogadishu, Somalia, Arash Arbasadi, VOA News. And that wraps up this edition of African News Tonight. I'm Douglas Impogo in Washington. For all the latest developments on the continent, 24-7, visit our website at voaafrica.com. On behalf of our producer, David Vande, and our engineer, Audrey Regis, thanks for choosing the Voice of America.